Before we get started, I want to talk about sponsors that help make this show possible. I've partnered with swimming companies that can serve our international audience. I'd like to introduce our newest sponsor, Swim Angelfish. Swim Angelfish is an online certification program that strengthens your teaching curriculum to serve swimmers of all abilities. Swim Angelfish will prepare you and your instructors with the skills to teach swimmers with autism, physical disabilities, anxiety, sensory and motor conditions, and more. Learn to teach skills faster and with more comfort with Swim Angelfish. Apply for an only alpha pool product scholarship and receive up to 50% off your certification. Go to swimangelfish.com today to apply. One of the best ways to build power in the pool is by using a tower. I got introduced to Chuck Destro. Because of the way Chuck designed them, they can break down and ship in a much smaller box so they can ship anywhere in the world for a reasonable price. Use code BRETT at checkout and save $150 on a double swim tower. That means if you order two, you can save $300. Order four, save $600. Go to destromachines.com to get your team stronger in the water today. Nate's come out with another awesome tool for the swimming community. It's called Swim Nerd Live, and it allows the data and times from your actual scoreboard to be broadcast and viewed in real time on any smart TV, phone, or other device. It has all the information you're looking for, event, heat, lane, name of swimmer, times and places. One click on any device and they're watching you swim it live in real time. Go to swimpractice.com to learn more. Looking to host your first swim meet or replacing an old timing system? Run a swim meet with ease from your laptop using superior swim timing. You can use superior swim timing with your existing equipment, or they can provide you with a complete timing solution, including deck harnesses, buttons, and starter. SST is fully compatible with HiTech and Team Unify, as well as Colorado, Dactronics, and Amiga touchpads. Go to superiorswimtiming.com to learn more and be sure to tell them I sent you. Gave you a little little intro song there, Austin. How's that, man? That was Chris, man. I liked that. That was fresh. That was fresh. We can go to the crowd too if you like. Crowd's there. They're always there following you around. <laughs> What's happening, man? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. Just got done with a fun three-day clinic with you, actually. So laid a little bit of base tan because it was at the week. Taking my... I'm uh, getting back into it with the swimming after trials, feeling pretty optimistic about things moving forward. Man, you 30, 30 year old now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm 30. 30 year old pro swimmer, had a few years off and decided to give it a crack and come back and try swimming again. And, and uh, you're doing the pro thing. Pretty cool, man. I'm really enjoying it. It's it, And also the the event switch. Like I used to be dude i'm really sorry oh my god are you kidding me 
Boomy, get out of here. Go away. Can we restart, Brett? I'm sorry. How'd Boomy get in? in? He was in chilling on my lap. And of course, as soon as I start talking to you, he acts like a freak. All right. I'm yeah. sorry, man. That will be the last one. He's gone. We don't have to restart. Nate will just cut it. Okay. Nate will do a clip. Um, do you want to just re-ask the question? Yeah. So talk to me, man. So 30-year-old professional swimmer, had a few years off, come back and doing your thing now. It's pretty cool. I'm really enjoying it, man. Um, the main thing I'm enjoying is the event refresher. You know, I used to be a, a 400 diameter, 200 diameter, doing a lot of really just tough mid-distance events. And now my focus is on the 50 and the 100 freestyle. And that's quite the contrast. And it's been a lot of fun so far. Super wild, actually. Back when I swam, there was a guy by the name of uh, Reich Neveling from, from South Africa. And he was kind mm -hmm. of a distance swimmer. I don't, I'm not sure if he swam I am, but certainly was like a Olympic medalist in the 1500, you know, and then mm -hmm. ended up becoming a, a sprint freestyle. And that always blew my mind. Uh, I, I didn't think it was a possibility until I saw it done. So how did you know that this was even a possibility? It's a long journey to this point for me. Uh, I've always had the idea that I could be a sprinter. I think it started with the fact that my dad was a pro baseball player and that sport is people don't think about it because they think oh, baseball slow baseball's boring. That's how a lot of people like to talk about it. But that sport is only made up of explosive movements, right? When you're, when you're a left fielder, you got to throw it 250 feet to home plate to throw a guy out. And that's an explosive movement. Hitting a hundred mile an hour fastball is an explosive movement. Sprinting 90 feet, uh, down the first baseline is an explosive movement. So I've always had it in the back of my mind, even when I was doing well at mid-distance events that required a little bit more aerobic capacity that I, and doing well at them, having some success with them, that I, I always knew there was something there that I could tap into with the sprints if I focused specifically on them. And that's the next step was in high school. Um, I set the goal that when I got to Texas, where I eventually went to college, that I wanted to make the Texas 400 freestyle relay. Because at the time, I was this scrawny guy whose best event was the 400 I am. I get to Texas. I get the chance to do the 200 free relay. I become an NCAA champion on the 400 free relay. And that's when I really knew, like, you know what? This, this is definitely something that I'm capable of. Um, and like you said, I retired for a few years uh, after the 2016 Olympic trials when I was 25. And I was pretty burned out on the aerobic training that I had to do to uphold um, excellence in the 200 IM because that was my focus at the time. So I was like, after a couple of years, I came back, had a fresh look at things because I had been coaching and I was lucky enough to work with a couple sprint groups along the way. And I thought, let's take a crack at this thing. Um, I really want to try this thing out and I've been waiting to do it for a long time. So let's stop waiting. You're a little poppy in the ears. How come you're not using your microphone? Microphone's been having a couple, a little bit of issues uh, lately. It For some reason, whenever I talk into it, it only comes through on the left here when you listen to it. Do Is it bad? Do you want me to switch to just talking to the computer? It might be better because those things are popping, you know, and it's kind of annoying because it just pops every yeah. couple of seconds. Tell me. No sound. Can't hear you. Nothing.
Still can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Awesome. Is this okay? Yeah, that's better. Yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome. Just take that pop away, you know? Mm -hmm. I know what you're talking about. It's a little crackly. All right, we can get back yeah. on. Sorry about that, man. No, that's okay. Now, listen, a um, little bit of talk today about Eddie Reese possibly coming out of retirement again. Did you see any of this stuff? I did. And even though I didn't expect it at all, I figured this was a great way for him to go out. You know, the guy's going to choose when he goes out, so I'm not speaking for him. But if you're writing a book about a guy's career, picking a nice round number like championship number 15, going into an Olympic year where you put a couple guys in the Olympic team, a lot of people thought that that made sense. Um, but it's also extremely on brand for Eddie, considering people thought have been talking about him retiring for like 13 years and he's just shrugged it off for 13 years. So <laughs> why not also shrug off actually retiring? <laughs> just add that to the pile, you know? <laughs> Oh man, it kind of goes to the, the the mythological creature, you know, that is Eddie Reese, and you know, good for him. Come back, why not? You know, have another crack at it. Sure, yeah. I mean, if they'll have him back, if that's what the athletic director's into, and it's part of the plan long term for the program, um, then yeah, why not? The athletes love him. The program's in a good spot. I don't see any issue with it. What's it like to actually swim for Eddie Reese? There's a lot of people that obviously look look at it from the outside in, but you're on the inside. What's it like? The most important thing about it is if it doesn't feel like anywhere else on earth in terms of some teams. And I'm not saying that with like, like flowers and sparkles and all that. Like it's genuinely a different place that's had the privilege of being cocooned for the last 40 years as Eddie's developed as a coach, come into his own created a program in his own image in his own way. So I grew up um, swimming for MBAC, which was the best age group program when I was there. And then when I was a pro, I went back to MBAC, um, swam pro at Arizona State, and I've coached at Johns Hopkins, and I've coached at um, Virginia. And all the, every single program I've been a part of has been an amazing experience. I've been very lucky. But all of those programs are very connected in the way that it, there's a lot of influence on, you know, everybody's influencing each other throughout USA swimming and coaches come in and out and they learn from each other. And there's learning going on at Texas and there's excellence, obviously at Texas, they win 15 national titles. But when we were there, it felt like no other place. Eddie ran the things the way that he wanted to run them. And it felt like there was almost no outside influence. Like we were in this cocoon that could block out any other type of program, any other type of swimming. So that I think that's the big reason that guys that leave the program have these these rose colored views of their time there is because it really is a singular experience in terms of swimming programs. And that's, again, not taken away from other programs. Um, I say that as objectively as possible with almost a decade of hindsight to think about it. So let's say Eddie leaves at some point. Let's say he's gone now. Um, do you think it's impossible to continue the tradition of winning that Eddie has established then? Because it's really just an Eddie Reese thing then, isn't it? Uh, no. I. You would think just because um, Eddie thinks of, like the program is Eddie is what you're saying. That's what you're yeah, saying. Right? Basically what I'm saying, yeah. I think that that's where Chris Cubitt comes into play. And I think he did such an amazing job of keeping everyone within the program connected 
and in touch with each other. And then also doing such an amazing job in uh, eventually training his replacement, Wyatt Collins. And everything that I hear when I talk to swimmers, um, when I talk to people around the program, is Wyatt's Wyatt slid in, and it was nothing. Nothing really changed, you know. Things just kept on rolling, and the results speak for themselves. I think they've won four of the last five national championships since Cubic left. So there really is, and that again goes back to the cocoon. Eddie, Eddie, and Chris had so much space to just block everything else out and just train Wyatt to get the job done in the way that they want the program to be run. Wyatt learned from them for, let's see, five years before taking over from Chris how to coach. And then he's been learning for the last five years from Eddie um, how to run a program. So in my mind, him or um, maybe someone else, I, I think Wyatt would do an amazing job of keeping the things rolling when the time comes. That's just my personal opinion. And I'm biased because he's a friend of mine. But yeah, it's if you want to keep the singular experience and the uniqueness rolling, um, train someone to do it. And I think Eddie and Chris are both very good teachers, and they put a lot of time into training him. Well, let's get specific then. What train them to do? What? What other things? What? What, what are the What are the pieces here that they're training? And how is it that then Wyatt can just pick those up and continue this winning excellence? What are these things? It come, I'm going to give you, and you know what I'm talking about. I'm going to give you a, an Eddieism to set it up, but then I'll actually give you a real answer. Um, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I think what Eddie does a really good job of and what Chris and Wyatt do a great job of helping Eddie with um, by kind of creating this uh, almost force field around him and around the program is um, – just blocking out a lot of stuff that is easy to get caught up in if you hear if there's a lot of external distractions and keeping everybody on track. Also, seeing a much longer view. Um, a, the beautiful thing about having a program with so much stability is you can think in terms of decades instead of what's next year, what's this program going to look like next year, what's my staff going to look like next year. Um, you know, are we fighting to get third in our conference and then win our conference? And, and, you know, this program has been at the tip top for a long time. So they can think about things in the long term and not sweat the small stuff of like, this is what happened at a dual meet, right? Mm -hmm. Or, oh man, the guys, there were a couple guys that were a little off of conferences. We got to like throw out the baby with the bathwater and start over. It's like, you know, it's okay. If you look at the aggregate, the last five years have been going great. Last 10 years have been going great. So let's run this program in a way that's healthy 10 years from now instead of what's one year from now. You know, like even Olympic cycles, you can stretch out beyond that. Oh, this Olympic cycle, you know, maybe was up or down. That's okay. Let's get to the next one, right? So I think the long view, I think tuning on extract, uh, distractions. And then that long view gives space for a lot, of, like a lot of irreverence that I think is incredibly necessary, but a lot of programs just don't have because they have to think in such, I don't know, smaller doses of like what's next, what's next, what's next. Mm, Sometimes yeah. the reference gets tuned out because they're grinding so hard to get to the next phase and get to the next phase. So Eddie brings a ton of a reverence to the program. Chris did that as well. And I know Wyatt is someone who really wants to bring out the best in his swimmers' personalities as well as their swimming. And every coach wants to do that for their swimmers. That's not like a unique thing. Um, but they just have more space to do it than most programs do. 
Right. I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. There's not that do or die pressure of winning and losing right now. Yeah. You know, they got second to Cal at the 2019 NCAA championships and it was super disappointing in for the guys, but it was also like, well, we just, I mean, we just won four in a row mm. yeah. <laughs> and we've got the best recruiting class in the country coming in. It'll be all right. We're going to put some guys in the Olympic team. Let's just take the L and move forward instead of, oh man, we got fourth at, I'm not going to call it a conference, a certain conference meet instead of getting third. Like, are we going to get our budget, you know, cut a little bit, you know, do I have to go and explain this to an athletic director and assistant AD who's our liaison to the athletic director? There's just a lot more space and whether that's skill on Eddie's part and Chris's part, of course it is because they set up this elite program that has a lot of space and a lot of slack within their athletic department. But then it gets to the point that it's actually, you know, that's that's a a bonus that other programs don't have that um, I hope other programs do get to have. And there are other programs that have a lot of space to make those decisions. But Texas is one where it is just singularly unique. I know I sound like the biggest cheerleader, but again, I'm trying to no, say this. Listen, man, you had success there. That's your coach. That's your team. I mean, of course, that's why I'm asking the question, you know, like mm -hmm. I want to know. Um authentically and I, and I think that's a fair answer but also I mean you you had success there what was what was the the record for you in in NCA performances of your team over the four years what was yours uh we got first second second fifth and that fifth was the first time that the program had been out of the top four in something like a decade so it was a pretty long string of first and second place performances before and after, um, and then a couple fourth place, fourth places sprinkled in before I got there. But mostly we were in the running to get first or second every single year. Was that your fault, the fifth? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it actually was. Here's a, uh, a little inside scoop that you're going to have on air. We got fifth to USC that year by, I think, a half point. And I can remember this so clearly because it still keeps me up at night sometimes, <laughs> eight years later. <sighs> And I was the anchor leg of the 400 free relay. And my sprint freestyle was dialed in that year. And I had my fastest flip to the feet. I had gone my fastest 50 free time ever uh, unshaved a couple months before. Uh, I'd gone all best times at the meet in my other events. And I knew that I was gunning. And then I had this awful, awful foot cramp going into the last wall. And I think we lost like one place after I did that. And... SC pulled ahead of us in the team standings and got fourth place. And I remember that very clearly because if you guys don't know, the NCAA championships, the top four teams get a trophy. It's not gold, silver, bronze. It's one, two, three, four get trophies. <laughs> and we got fifth and I was like, fuck crap. How could you fail me? <laughs> uh, classic, I <laughs> love it. Away. Yeah. If you want to blame the last guy in the pool, then yeah, it was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can't take all that heat, man. But no, um, no. No, no. Did how did or did Eddie and Chris get the best out of you over those four years? And and if so, or if not, how did they do it? Mm -hmm. They did. Um, they definitely did my freshman year, and then I plateaued for a couple years, and then brought it back my senior year. Um, I would say they did it in their own different ways. Um, Eddie knew what to bring out of me. Like he knew what I enjoyed and what was fun to me about swimming. And Cubic knew the right words to say to me to make me feel like kind of a badass. 
Uh, and those right. two things dovetail together and, and a badass, but then he also, uh, on top of the badass part, Chris also knew wait things to say to me. I was someone who was very, very aware of legacy and history and connection. Like everyone that goes to Texas is, but I really thought about those things. And Chris always had a way of knowing like what to tell me about something that was going on with me. That's like a parallel to something that happened you know, 20 years ago for a team that won in 1990. And I'd be like, hell yeah, that's really cool. Like, <laughs> let's go, let's do this thing. Um, and then Eddie, he knew, he knew that I always thought I was a sprinter, maybe because I told him. <laughs> <laughs> and he also knew I drew a lot of confidence from pace work when I tapered. Um, I was someone that would get really beat up during the year. I would lift super heavy. Um, it always seemed like I am in mid distance and aerobic training, warming down mo more than most dudes. Um, I would say a good parallel would be Ricky Barons who did similar events to me, two hundreds that dude could get close to the American record on shaves, you know, and, and beat me in backstroke at big 12. And he's not even a backstroker on shaves. You know, I was the guy that was getting fifth place in the 400 IM in January. And then I went and set the team record at NCAA as an A final and Eddie knew that my confidence came from, all right, the rest is come a rest and more like a sprinter than a 400 diameter. Cause he has these big muscles, um, relative to other 400 diameters. And then B like, uh, in basketball, they call it like feed the big man in the post. Like if you want the big man to play defense and get rebounds, you got to feed him a couple points. Like yeah. I needed to be fed pace work as like a reward for busting my ass all year. Cause I was never the guy that liked working out. I always saw swim practice as a means to an end to get to where I want to go. So when we were resting, say before big 12s or a couple weeks after NCAs, like I wanted to do some sort of inflated, um, just like cartoonish pace workout that would have me setting like the American record in the 400 IM by 20 seconds. If you added up the splits, that would give me a lot of confidence. Um, and then during the season, he knew the right things to say to me when I'd be losing focus a little bit to get me back on track too. But without making me feel like it was the end of the world, coming back to that long view and turning, tuning out the typical external distractions. And that's really a key to coaching too. I think that that goes unrecognized um, a lot with Eddie, uh, just knowing the right things to say at the right times. And, and Chris, for sure as well. I think, the, I think they were a dynamic duo for, for many years, you know, just, being able to work off each other, Chris knowing, you know, when to step in and when to step back and same with Eddie type thing. And just, but just knowing the right things to say a lot, you know, often when I would talk to Chris and he wasn't even my coach, I found like he was just saying the right things to me to encourage me as a coach. Mm -hmm. And and he's, he's um, my competition. So it was like, that guy knows what he's doing. He's a guy that recognizes um, the position that he's in, but he sees it, as an opportunity for service instead of throwing his weight around and um, making people feel smaller because of his position. He always wanted to bring people up with what he had at his disposal. Yeah. I like that. That's, that's good stuff. I was always fascinated with the fact that you guys managed to swim well at, at NCAAs, but weren't really pushed ever at conference. Like we, we would go through the gauntlet at SEC's, and I felt like that was that got us ready to go at NCAs. But then, you know, you guys never had that. So how how were you able to have the confidence you had at NCAA's coming out of that week conference? But that's the thing we we didn't care. 
we didn't care. We didn't care that Big 12s was slow because a we always had confidence that we'd be ready for NCAs. It was such an NCAA-centric program. And again, this com- th- that's another thing that isn't even something that Eddie and Chris set up that they can I can give them credit for. Because we were in the Big 12, we, like conferences, It Chris made sure that it, we knew it was a big deal. We were winning conferences every, every year and we didn't take it for granted. But it wasn't like this like big scary thing looming in the horizon for us. Um, it, get, it allowed us to think past conferences towards NCAs. So we thought of conferences, either guys were getting their cuts for NCAs. And a lot of guys that, that I thought our program did a really good job of is we'd have guys shave and tape for conferences, get their cuts, and then go faster at NCAs afterward. Um, and then we saw it as a chance to race each other. You know, um, In the 200 IM, I was going back and forth with Nick Dinichenzo for four years in the 200 IM. And in the 200 backstroke, I was slugging it out with uh, Kip Darmody and other guys on our team for two years or whatever it was. We were racing. That was the best opportunity to race our teammates Mm. without thinking about everybody else. And it's not like there were scrubs. Like A&M was a really good program, you know, and Missouri was a really good program when they were in the Big 12. And then when we switched it over – um, TCU and West Virginia had guys that would win events here and there. We actually never swept big 12s in my time there. So there was also like the way that you were guys were going to SECs to win SECs. Mm-hmm. Like our version of that was we're going to big 12s to try and win at every single event. Like yeah. that was like an equal, like sort of care that we had to you guys trying to win the whole conference. So it was just, I guess, changing our lens. And but again, it felt like a very important, very significant pit stop on the way to NCAs. Like we'd win the meet, obviously handily, um, but then Chris Kubik would be almost in tears on the bus ride home, telling us how important it is that we just won the Big Twelve Conference and they would write, light the tower orange in our honor. Like it still was a really big deal. So I think yeah. it was important that the coaches knew a way to inject significance into the situation. Did you ever look at the other conferences and just think, oh wow, these guys are throwing down? Like we're not we're not gonna be able to like did it break your confidence in any way? If guys were going fast, I, I'm not gonna lie, I would let it get in my head from time to time. You know, I'd watch I don't know why this name's coming to mind first, but I'd watch like Kyle Whitaker blow it up in a two or a four hundred IM at uh Big Tens and I'd be like, Man, I gotta deal with that guy at NCAs. Mm-hmm. Um but I was someone I never got really hung up on, wow, those guys are all racing each other. They're more ready than me. I was very focused on my own times and I had confidence that taking care of uh, my own times and my own performance would get me as far as I needed to go at NCAAs and contribute the most for the team. What year was it that you won the 2IM? That was 2010. That was my freshman year. Freshman year, okay, mm-hmm. right, right. Is that did that play a part in why you said you plateaued for a couple of years because you won so soon? Yeah, man, it was my very first impression of college swimming. My first event, I was the first freshman in seven years to win an NCAA event on the men's side, and then our team won for the first time in eight years, mm. uh, two days later. So. I was personally not ready for that. I was never the best. 
um, anywhere that I was growing up. And that was just because, you know, coming from NBAC, Michael Phelps and Katie Hoff and a, a handful of other people that ended up making Olympic teams, world championship teams were all just bigger stars than me at the time. And I always felt like little brother and the underdog, even when I was succeeding on a very high level in high school and making USA junior teams and being recruited to the best team in the country. So winning that was like, I finally got mine. Um, and I didn't reorient myself around what I wanted next because it was such a big delta between the goals that I even set for myself. And our, our goal meeting that year, uh, we have a goal meeting every September to start off the season where guys write down goals that they either want to share with the group or not share with the group, but everyone shares something with the group. And I knew we were going to win NCAs that year. And my only goal was scored NCAs. So if I got 16th in one event and scored a point, I would have gotten my goal. And I went from that, from being the 35th recruit, the 35th ranked recruit in the country or something like that to being like the guy very briefly. And people were talking to me about like, you know, is this guy going to make an Olympic team? And I really, I really just wasn't ready for it. I kept working hard in practice, but the intentionality and the hunger um, didn't fill back up until I had experienced a little bit of disappointment for a couple of years. Right. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, that That's really interesting. And, and I want to, I want to touch on that aspect of it because a lot of people do go through slumps and, and you got to figure out a way to get out of it. Um, when you're in it, it's tough. What are some of the things that you did during that time that helped you through it? Mm-hmm. I, the first thing I did was spoke out and talk to someone that talked to people that cared about me and let them know, like, I'm going through a lot right now. Like, this is really, really tough for me right now. And it was people, there were people that held me accountable, like my parents. And they were like, you got to pull yourself up and get back on track. Um, you know, my mom flew down after my junior year NCs when I don't think I made a single A final, which was the only time in my time in college. And I went all just my slowest times at NCAAs. She actually flew down and helped me clean up my house. You know, she helped me organize my house. It was a mess. <laughs> and little things like that got me back on track. And I stayed um, alone. I actually had my own apartment for a couple months leading up to that Olympic trials because it was 2012. And so reaching out to people for help, but also people that would hold me accountable to like getting back on track and understanding what like what the heck are my goals next is super important. Number two is understanding this is really hard because this is just about the difference in like feelings and almost like neurotransmitters, but understanding that there really was just never going to be another feeling that was as novel and impactful as winning NCAAs as a freshman and have, and winning a team title. You know, I thought I could simulate that feeling again and have a similar jump the next year but I didn't do anything in practice that was different to get myself to that jump. So when I didn't have that same awesome feeling the next year, I was pretty good my sophomore year. I was, I should have been proud of how I did, but it didn't feel as amazing as my freshman year. And our team was very, very invested in winning the NCAA championships that year. And we ended up getting second. So understanding that I actually did pretty well. It just wasn't going to feel the same as it did when it was new. Um, I had to like kind of do like an accounting of how I'd done the last couple of years and realize, you know what? I've done pretty well. I didn't stick to a trajectory that looked like a rocket ship when I first came on and seen as a freshman. 
but I've been cons- I was consistent. Uh, I made a World University Games team in the meantime, even when I was slumping. And I was going best times in other events, even if they weren't my best events. And I had to also give myself credit for that. And then the last thing was understanding that no one's actually really like as mad at you as you think they are. And I know, and I know you and everybody else knows what I'm talking about. Of like, mm-hmm. dude, like I was so in my head and so paranoid about like, man, everybody thinks I stink. Like I'm super disappointing. Yeah. I'm not doing what I was supposed to do. Supposed to is a really tough word, by the way. Supposed to is a very complicated word that people got to recognize when that's stuck in their head. And then when I realized like, actually, uh, everybody else is just as concerned about their own lives and they're not thinking 24 seven about, Oh man, Austin didn't go best times this year. (laughs) It was like, you know what? Actually the slate's pretty clean. And the first step forward from here is a step towards getting where I want to go. And I'm not at a, at a deficit like I thought I was, you know? And I would say that's the last bit real quick is accepting reality as it is and not constantly putting yourself at a deficit. If you are on a downswing from something you had done before. It's funny because our, our, um, our stories are actually pretty similar. I, uh, I won freshman year as well, and I, can't, I burst onto the scene just like skyrocketed, like who the hell is this guy from Australia mm-hmm. um, and ended up winning the 53 my, my freshman year, and, and it, it all just seemed easy, you know. And then yes. second year, I, I, similar to what you are talking about in terms of like you want the experience to be the same, and it's it's different, you know. But you want it to be the same. It's like no, I want everything that happened just the way it happened. But, but I'm in my second year now. It's a completely different thing, and everybody knows who I am now. And I've got a target on my back. And and I ended up finishing seventh in the fifty free. And and our team won my first year, you know, that I, that I won the, the the fifty. And then we ended up second as well. And so we had a team disappointment. I felt you know, a lot of that I carried on my back. Like that's you know, we lost because of me. I wasn't yeah. good enough and team's not good enough. Took a lot of that responsibility on as well. And a lot of the thought was, oh, what if I had gotten, what if I had scored the points that I had scored last year? How would things be different? Or even just had the impact, you know, like me yeah. winning events creates mm-hmm. this whole feeling over there for other people to then go on and have, you know, so you, you take on a lot of responsibility in terms of just the way the, the team is jiving as well, right? That's true, because 53 and 200 IM are both day one events. Mm-hmm. Yep. I definitely, whether I was self-mythologizing or not in the moment, but I definitely felt like I set the tone for the rest of the mm. meet for the guys. Yeah. Because we had a 200 free relay. Well, the 200 free relay went, went well. 500 free, I think we were up or down. And then when I won the IM, it was like, oh, we're off and running. Like This is like a surprise batch of points that we didn't play, plan for. Yeah. The pressure's off for us to really cut loose and just let it fly and have fun. Like I, I felt like I provided that, and then, like you said, when I didn't do that the next year, I felt like I came short. Yeah, but yeah. that's the tough thing we don't realize when we burst onto a scene is a lot of what was fun about the first time is we were a surprise, right? We were like a novelty, something new, mm-hmm. and then it's expected from you after that, and you gotta like you gotta re- realize that, and you yeah. gotta differently to move forward and like, <laughs> yeah. you know you touched on something that i didn't cover but you're absolutely right i wanted to just run it back and for things to be just as easy so i was like you know what like and honestly it was it was a little bit arrogant on my part i was definitely a little bit arrogant about it like oh yeah i was like you know what if i just run it back and do what i need to do like maybe i'll even go even faster next year but it's like uh that's not how something works <laughs> 
Yeah, I just I I don't think I trained any worse necessarily. I probably took things a little bit, you know, for granted, just thinking things would fall in place and they just didn't. And it was just like, what's going on? Like this was so much easier last year. <laughs> like every everything was at my fingertips and now nothing's clicking, nothing's working. And um so third year I just went back to the drawing board. I just went back to work ethics gonna get you there and and stopped relying on just things to fall in place. Like, all right, if I'm going to get this, i got to work for it. And I just went into just work mode, you know. That was kind of my yeah. way out of it. You know, that, yeah, man, we were so similar, man. It was my senior year for me. Yep. But after that disappointing junior year, I ended up doing very well at the Olympic trials. That was my highest placing fourth. But when you're at Texas, everyone cares about the college season. Yeah, <laughs> so I was texting a bunch of guys that I saw as mentors, like, Hey, I want to get back on track. Like, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Cause I, and I also felt like, Oh, all these guys that I hold on this pedestal are disappointed in me. And it's actually like, no, they're 25 year old men getting jobs and living their own lives. They're not thinking about you letting down the team. <laughs> but a couple of them were like, dude, just hit the weight room super hard, work mm -hmm. your ass off this year and just like get your shit back on track and you'll be fine. And so I did that. And it was the thing that was really important for me was I was having some struggles. Um, I was having some mental health struggles for those years too, those plateau years. Um, a lot of uh, like anxiety, panic attacks, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that's like a really tough space to be in. And I remember being so fed up by being controlled by panic and anxiety that my senior year, I was like, you know what? Like, I'm afraid I'm going to die if I like push myself harder, like my heart's going to explode. Like, screw it. I'm just going to bust my ass. And if I, my heart does explode, then it does explode. Like I'm, I'm willing to die in the pool for this thing. Um, and that I actually didn't experience any episodes or incidents for, I think my entire senior year, because I had that attitude of just like, mm -hmm. I'm so driven to leave this place better than I found it that I'm like, I'm willing to die in the pool while I'm working out to get there. And my senior year, like I said, it was my best NCA performance. And I went all best times that summer too at the nationals. So you, you continue to swim a few years after that, obviously. When did you make the decision to leave Texas and why? So I had I was going to have another year after my senior year mm -hmm. uh, because I was on the five-year track for school. I was a you know, Van Wilder type. Yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely not the favorite in the athletic department for that, but you know, I got the, I got the piece of paper, so it's all good. And I think it was, it was definitely like a, it was a mutual thing between Eddie and I, I really did want to come back, but it was around a time period where he was switching things around with the program. And it, it felt like almost like a, a chapter change with the program. And he, and he was bringing in a bunch of new recruits. Um, so my senior year, we brought in the best recruiting class in the country now looking like the best recruiting class of all time. And Jack Conger, Clark Smith, Will Lacone, guys that, won a ton of NCAA titles together. And then the year after that was arguably was just as good and arguably better. And it seemed like Eddie was trying to clear out a lot of remnants of the past because he felt like the program was on this upswing towards winning a bunch of titles. And lo and behold, they won a bunch of titles. So part of why I left was I think Eddie wanted to kind of clean slate the program because especially that fifth place my senior year, and then they got second my pro year when I was still hanging out there and training. Uh, that I think he felt like that team needed to get first, and they didn't. But uh, and he was like, "We just really gotta just switch everything around here and take a different direction." And so 
he was like, I think you should just find a new place um, to train. I was going to say that. So Eddie kind of put it to you like, hey, you need to go look somewhere else. Yeah. I say mutual in the way that looking back, I think I, I needed to get out of there. Um, I needed a change. I needed a change of scenery in terms of my training because as a pro, like it's tough at Texas as a pro. Well, well, I should say it was tough as at Texas as a pro because a lot of guys are so used to everything that they get in terms of the structure on the college team. Mm. But it's a program where you're there by the grace and Eddie of Eddie and Chris. You're not paying any money. Mm. When I was there, by the way, you weren't. I wasn't paying them any money. I was just training with the college team, like I was still a varsity athlete. But their job is the college kids, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's this like subliminal thing of like, wait, something's like something's really missing. Like I'm here, but I'm not experiencing what I used to experience in terms of like deep attention from the coaches and being in the flow with the team and doing all of the team activities with them. And so it like really hollows out. It hollowed out something. And I think that's that's a common common experience. experience. Yeah. It's a lot of college programs where the people are allowed to stick around and there's no like structured pro group where people pay to be there. And I think they improved that setup. And now I don't know if guys pay to be there. I don't, I don't know much about their pro group now, but it's much more sophisticated now and has been for the last four years. And I know that guys feel like their group, their pro group is their team and they're much more integrated with the team because it's like their place is more defined now. Whereas me, it was almost like I was hanging around because I was still in school, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And then from there, I went back to NBAC um, with with Bob and training with Michael and Allison and, and all these amazing people. What? So speaking of that, what's it like to train with Michael? And wh- what year was this? So that was when I graduated in 2014. I got to train through the summer, through nationals with the Texas team. And then I moved in uh, September back to Baltimore to, to start training with them. So this is Michael's lead up to Rio then? Yes, I was with them for the two years leading up to Rio. Wow. Okay. Had you done any significant work with Michael previously? Not re- No, not at all. Zero. Um, we are from the same club team growing up, NBAC, but when I came into my own as an athlete from age 13 to 17, that's when Bob and Mike were up at Michigan. So Bob was my very first age group coach when I was eight, but – um, beyond that, I had other coaches growing up because by the time I got to the place where I could swim for Bob, he was gone. So in a way it was like joining a new, a new team, even though I was coming back to my old team and I had never trained with Michael before. He was always obviously light years ahead of me when I was a kid. So there's what you hear and then there's what you experience with Michael. So what were the differences in maybe some of the things that you heard about him and then your experiences training with him? What I had heard is that he expects a lot from people Mm -hmm. and that he treats his group like a team. And I didn't realize that until maybe like a year and a half out of my two years there into it. Cause I figured it's just like, we're just a bunch of pros. Like, and, and, and a lot of that was there, there was a coalesced group of people with Bob and Michael, Chase, Allison, um, Keenan Robinson doing performance before I got there. So they were like a team, like a family when I got there. Like an inner circle type thing. Not, not in, a, in, in an exclusionary way, but in a way that like if you don't have a respect for that, then, then, it, then 
um, you don't really get what's going on with that group. And it took me a while to kind of respect that this team was a very close knit group of people. Mm -hmm. And I just thought of it as like, I just need a place to train because I'm a pro. Let's just go back to my old club team. Like why, like why not train with Bob and Michael Phelps? And it's like, actually they invited me to be there. Like that's a really cool thing that I got to be there. And um, because of all of that, that I just said, he expects a lot from people when they are representing him, representing Bob and representing the team. And he expects people to carry themselves a certain way when they're at practices and when they're at meets. So it's a, it is a lot of Michael and that's because he expects a lot. I mean, it like the people who are the best on earth at what they do, they bring a lot to every single situation. That's what makes them so great and so excellent. And had they gotten, had they gotten past, but that includes when he wants to help you out, like, He's going to give you everything he's got. And he was incredibly generous with, you know, helping me out and giving me tips and practice too. Oh, really? So, you know, he, he would, he would look out for you as well in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when I was messing up, he would let me know. He was very, like, he was very straight with guys who were maybe not bringing the right attitude. The number one thing, and I've heard this a lot about when college kids, especially a program like Texas, where there's like a very, like I said, a singular culture, a very specific way of doing things, and they go somewhere else. They'll roll up with this idea of like, well, we did this at Texas. And it's like, uh, you're in a new training group now. And for a while, I had that attitude of like, this is what I did at Texas. This works for me. Um, I'll like, I'll do the training with you guys, but I'm not like super bought into the culture. And it was like, no, you have to buy in whole cloth to the culture. We've got someone that runs weights and advice and, uh, you know, helps you out with nutrition and sleep and like a whole holistic program. You got to like use all of it if you want our training to work for you. And I'd be like, well, we'll do this to Texas or blah, blah, blah. And that in, in hindsight was this arrogant post-college kid, you know, 23-year-old thing that I did. And that's got to get like worked out of you when you first join a new group of like, great. That's really great. What you did back at that old group. And we respect that group that you came from, but this is us. And we do things a certain way here. We well, saw Michael at the end of his career, kind of like you, you could call it his pro years. I'm sure he had learned a lot and he was doing things obviously at that stage, probably the right way at that stage, you know, like uh, yeah. you know, cut out a lot of the crap. So what did you take from that period of time watching him as a, as a pro at his best to what you're doing now? Is this, is this similarities, the things that you've pulled from that? Yeah, absolutely. A, a lot of what I saw from Michael that, number one, that he sought out for himself, and number two, that he had access to just because he had an immense amount of resources at his disposal in terms of the money he was making and the resources from the governing body that mm. was looking out for him. It's it's a 24-hour thing with him, man. You know, like he's right. thinking about every bite of food he's putting in his body. Mm-hmm. He was tracking his sleep. And obviously everyone does that now. But in 15 and 16, that was still kind of a nation um, industry and a kind of a new way to look at things. Mm. Um and a lot of that was provided by Keenan Robinson, who you've had on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and him and Bob working together of like, this is what's happening in the pool. This is what's happening in the weight room. This is what happens when you go home and go to bed. This is what happens when you eat to fuel your body. And the main thing I learned from it was Michael had busted his ass and worked so hard and was like so legendary for 
the ridiculous swim practices that he would do for such a long time. And then I got there and he was doing what the rest of us were doing. Like I was never someone who did insane practices. Um, but like Chase would be Michael in a lot of our sets that were centered around like super long yardage, you know, like yardage hound sets, right? Mm -hmm. Like he would beat him a lot of the time. And I realized that it's actually, you have to look at the big picture that what Michael was giving was the best. He's not the best in the world at every single practice, but the way that he recovered from it, what he was training himself to do when he was doing those practices in terms of like, he's thinking about his stroke. He's thinking about every single inch of every single repeat very intentionally. And then again, when he goes home, he's taking care of himself better than anybody else in the two years that I was there. Um, that really inspired me to think about swimming, not just, are, are you working harder than the person next to you? And then, you know, turn your brain off and that's it. It's, it's a, it's really a holistic 24 hour thing. If you want to, um, I guess be elite and get to the next level. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the thing is when you're tapped out on how hard you can work and Michael's, you know, 31 years old at this point going into 16, he can't do the things he was doing in 19 every single day anymore. It's just got to be a different type of training. And instead he had to think about how can I get the most from that training? Right. So that's the way to think about it. It's not how much harder can I work? It's mm -hmm. how many hours of the day can I see through the lens of swimming? Right. I've never watched a full practice of Michael's, but I, I bet you during that time where, where Chase was beating him a lot of the time, I bet you there were moments for you where you saw Michael do something that nobody else could do. I bet I bet you there was a practice where it was just like, oh, that's Michael Phelps. Like, yeah, that's pretty special. You know what I mean? Like, it's got to be one of those where he just pulled some shit out of his ass and you're like, damn, there's no one that can do that. Dude, I, I wish I could give you an exact time, but – Definitely whenever we would do pace workouts, because at this point in his career, Michael was basically like a 100, 200 swimmer, right? Yeah. He was like a, a mid-sprint swimmer with obviously an amazing aerobic base. So he was a guy that was going to get a ton from rest. And and by the way, I Chase wasn't beating him all the time for people listening. I'm not saying Chase was kicking his ass every single day. They would trade back and forth and Michael would kick his butt on maybe a lot of the shorter sets. But when we would do pace workouts leading up to big meets – and you saw the dragon breathe fire and see him do, you know, a fast 150 butterfly or whatever it was. That's when you're like, oh. that's what I mean. Yeah. 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 It's Michael I mean, Phelps I mean, shit. No one else is doing. You're like, oh, I mean, we've known for 14 years. The guy set a world record after breaking his wrist in 2007, his own world record. So it's yes. And, and that was absolutely true when I was there. Um, but it would, it would come out more, when we were doing pace workouts, absolutely toward getting closer to the big meets. Was he good at everything or was he special at certain things? Like, mm. you know, there, there are some people that are just freak kickers. There are some people that are just, when you put a buoy between their legs, they can just do some freaky things, you know, yeah. like w where was he special? Two things. You already said it, the kick with the stuff he could do hundreds long course kick on a kickboard on a kick whatever whatever kicking he was like he'd mix it up multiple standard deviations better than anybody else mm, mm. and that obviously came from years of hard work um i had heard things about um 
I, it was things that I heard about Joe schooling too, was like hundreds butterfly kick long course. He could go like under a minute or something like that. Yeah. Like Michael was doing things like that too. And then the second thing was his discipline with his skills when he got tired. Like the reason that he could, you know, he's not the best underwater kicker in the world. If you're doing a dead sprint, right. There's probably, yeah. uh, there was probably a handful of guys throughout his career that were better at underwater kicks, but no one else on earth was more disciplined getting those underwaters done and doing them at perfect technique, the exact way that they trained them in the 200 fly or at the end of a 400 IM. He was the only one that could do that. And it showed in practice every single day. Um, I guess now I'm just really honing in on this chase beating him thing. But like, even if like him and chase were racing in some sort of 15, 200 free IM set, you can bet that Michael was super, super disciplined on that last wall with his kick out, getting to 10 to 15 meters on, before he broke out and started swimming. Even if he, even if he was behind, even if the time wasn't perfect. Um, so what those were you the, doing there? What were you training for? What do you mean? In what event in 16? Oh, yeah, 200 IM and the 200 free were the two events. So if you're training for the 200 IM, you I mean you're talking about chase a lot, but were there days where you're like walking into the pool thinking, I'm going to take Michael out today. Like, this is my day. No. <laughs> I wish I could tell you, man. I wish I could say it to You never thought you could beat him in practice? I, I don't think I ever beat him in practice. Like, never really? once. Even when he came back from a pretty significant break that he took in the 2014 season um, before he came back to swimming, I, I don't think I ever got him in practice, man. Is that like, because you didn't think you could get him or he didn't let you get him? Both. That, and that's what he does to everybody is that you, you have to – and I've heard stories back in, like back in the day when he was training in Michigan, like, you know, Cleet Keller and Eric Vent could take him on those longer sets because they never were afraid of him. Like everybody was friends in that group and saw each other's equals. But if he's got you – then he a he's not letting you beat him because he has a deeper well for discipline and just like just sheer like screw you I'm not losing to you like people mm. say that but he's the only person I know before I watched the last dance and understood Michael Jordan a little bit better yeah. um, I would say those two guys are the only one people on this earth that I've experienced where it's like this ancient primal feeling that they can feel of I will. Like my heart will explode in this pool before I beat you. I will summon every bit of energy that I have left in my body to be. And then on top of that, I mean, the workouts were just geared better towards him and Chase. Like Chase was trained to, do, to be a 400 IM or Michael was trained to be a 200 IM, 200 flyer. And it was a very aerobic heavy program. And it was a step up from what I was used to for sure. Like amazing training. I was in the best shape of my life. Um, but I, I got whacked by it. I got my ass kicked by it. So for me, doing the workouts and completing them most days and making the intervals most days was like, that was like my, my check mark. There were, there weren't a ton of days where it was also like, let's also excel and throw down some times that someone might text someone else and be like, dude, check out what you did today. Like it was just grind, man. Just put in the work. Do you think that mentality can translate into sprint like a sprinter? could have that type of mentality in terms of domination and um, relentlessness and attack and will every day. And, and it translate into um, super fast swimming. I think it feeds. Yes. 
And I think it feeds itself. Like, obviously, it's got to happen in practice. Like, you can't be a scrub in practice um, and then roll it to a meet and display that attitude, right? But if someone genuinely attacks with that attitude of, like, I'm willing to die in the pool for this and no one's going to beat me, and sprinting especially because it's all stuff that's at maximum effort, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if they bring that attitude to practice every single day, then it feeds itself and it feeds itself. And it feeds itself good food of like you're putting in the work to back up that attitude. And then that feeds real confidence that has a real foundation to it. And then you can take that to a competition and then you start beating people. That's your reward for carrying that attitude and practice and leaving everything in the pool. Then you go back to the then you go back to practice work even harder. So yeah, it that attitude absolutely feeds itself. Why did you decide to come back and, and try this pro thing at a, at a later stage? How long did you take off? I took off about – I didn't touch a pool for a year, like actually not get in and swim in a pool for about a year. And yeah. then I was coach, and then I started coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the first thing that started drawing me back was like, I'm learning a lot from this coaching. And I never had a curious mind, like a super, super curious mind about stuff that I didn't even realize I could learn about when I was swimming. Uh, I kind of wish I had knew this. I kind of wish I knew this when I was swimming and I kind of want to apply it while my body still has the ability to, you know, translate it kinetically. And the first step towards getting back towards swimming was a friend of mine that I swam with the Texas name is Brian Collins. He actually shot me a text in January of 2018. I hadn't been swimming at all. And he was like, hey, uh, April, a group of us are gonna get together at a master's meet and try to set some national records on relays. Like, what do you think you wanna go? And initially I was hesitant, I was like, I haven't haven't done anything. I don't know how much I miss swimming. And I just trained for three months and ended up going like 19.5 on a relay. And the best I'd ever been in college was 19.2. And I think I was 44-1, a little hungover from drinks (laughs) drinks the night before. We had a lot of fun that weekend. It wasn't like the most serious thing. But it was. I realized to myself, I I really have something here. And three months of that kind of training, going two to three days a week in between working for Johns Hopkins, coaching there, um, I got here. If I actually really apply myself and start learning about what it takes to sprint, I think I can get myself to something that I can personally be proud of intrinsically, whether or not it translates to external things. Um, I wasn't as worried about that at the time, but intrinsically it was like, I can really do something fun with sprinting and maybe let out a few things that I'd wish I had done when I was a full-time, full-time swimmer in college in my couple pro years. Going from that experience to where you are now, you've just swum Olympic trials. You know, you finished in the top 25 um, in, in the 50 and the 100, you know, swimming best times, 22s in the, in the 50, 49s in the 100. I mean, pretty interesting, cool stuff, you know, for a guy that's not – what's your training schedule like now? What is it like? Mm-hmm. So when I really committed myself – to a training schedule centered around training for the 50 and the 100. A lot of it was, it was like a combination of being influenced by what I learned working with our sprint group at Johns Hopkins for the 17-18 season. And then especially um, being a volunteer assistant coach at UVA 
uh, under Todd DeSorbo, who now mm -hmm. has, I think, four or five Olympians and is an Olympic coach himself. Um, Andrew Sheaf, who was paired up with Todd that year and who I had a lot of conversations with about training. And then Wes Foltz, who was the kind of mid-sprint coach there and who I spent a lot of time with my last couple months. Learning how UVA approached sprinting and what they were getting out of their sprinters and also the kind of hard work that their swimmers were putting in that wasn't necessarily measured in just yardage. Right. It made me realize, wait, okay, not only can I do something that I can be intrinsically proud of because I just went, you know, like 19.5 I was really proud of. Now I can actually do something real on a shorter schedule, which I'll, I'll get into. I'll take everybody through the schedule. On a shorter schedule because I just learned from this program that, you know, you can do an hour like – a couple days a week, the sprinters can do a workout that's like an hour and 15 minutes. And you can't even measure the yards of what they did because they're just busting their their fucking asses uh, doing power rack work where mm -hmm. they're doing, you know, a bunch of sets of 10 dolphin kicks on the wall, off the wall, max effort um, on 45 seconds or things with um, socks and fins where it's just all out 25s on like a minute max effort freestyle kick. Um, you know, I used like a big thing back at Texas and even though Eddie wouldn't write anything down and especially in NBAC was like, we always knew what our yardage was. And that right. was like the main guide for like how much work we were putting in. And that wasn't the only guide, but that was how I thought about things. It was like, man, we're putting in like seven, eight K this time of the year. That's a lot of work. We got to start coming down. Right. It's actually like there's units of work that aren't yardage and that completely shifted everything for me. Mm -hmm. So I went into a schedule that I maintained for a little while until from like fall of 19 until March of 20 when the pandemic hit and we lost pool access. That was um, two days a week. I was in the Hopkins diving well, which is a 15 yard diving well doing 45 minutes of circuits on a combination of Destro towers, the smaller, more compact buckets and the blue classic power racks. Mm -hmm. And it was just a combination of flutter kick and all out freestyle kicks on the power racks and dolphin kicks on the power racks and max effort freestyle swimming on the buckets. And I would mix up equipment, you know, I'd be I'd do things like socks on my hands, swimming with fists all out on the, on the towers and socks and fins while I'm doing dolphin kicks on the racks, uh, mixing in vertical kicks so I can get a ton of reps of kick without doing a yardage. And then once a week, it was total focus on the back end of my hunter freestyle. And the first checkpoint that I got that the training was working was in 2019 in November. I got my first, what eventually became a wave one cut, but my first Olympic trial cut, the 50 freestyle ever after mm -hmm. doing this type of training for four months, five months, I went 22, eight and a 50 freestyle after never being under, you'd have to look at swimtimes.com or whatever to see what <laughs> I ever went before that. Cause I never did the 50. Um, and when the pandemic hit and we lost pool access a couple months, I was lucky enough that my parents have a pool. So I was doing, and it's a 20 yard pool. So I was lucky enough that I could just maintain when I was in their pool. And then I didn't have access to the Hopkins pool until February of this year. So there was no power racks, no buckets until February. And then I lost it again. It was February to April. I could do my power rack stuff again. And then from April through trials, it was just piecing it together with whatever I could do at Metabro because they don't have that typical resistance equipment. So it was a lot of um, all-out 25s. You know, I do 25s from a dive all-out freestyle with a scuba diving belt wrapped around my waist <laughs> so that I could feel the lift that I needed to get from my butt and my waist off dives 
and keeping high hips even when I was tired doing all out freestyle. Um, but it, it got a little bit inconsistent during the college season of February to April because I was so focused on my work. And then I got myself back on track for a couple months leading up to Olympic trials. Cool, man. I've been and then in... lifting once a week and Pilates once a week. That was what I settled into. But it's kind of a new formula for, you know, people that want to come back to the sport and have an experience. I mean, um, and, and maybe do things a little bit differently too. Like you said, you had a certain experience with Eddie and then with Bob, and now here you are kind of doing it the way you want to do it. And I think there's a lot of athletes out there who've, who've had experiences like that where they've sold out for coaches and done it their way. And now they just want to do things their way and experience it and, and experiment and play and just have fun swimming and training and, and racing again. And, so I think your your story is pretty inspirational for a lot of people, and there's a lot to learn from that as well, you know? I hope someone learns from it. I think you touched on something that I want to dive into a little bit more, and it's something that I thought about a lot when I first came back. And actually, and, and I know um, I think there's been a like a complicated – like everything you presented, all the facts about the ISL, you know, the viewers are either in on it or out on it. But the overall net positive effect it's having, in my opinion, on swimming, and I'm someone who very much wants to participate in it, by the way, so I think it's super cool. But it's bringing back the only term that I can think of that sticks in my head is like the middle class of super fast swimmers, right? Like when you stop swim, when you stop college swimming, you stick around. Um, a, if it fits with what you're trying to do, like, you know, you just want to swim for a couple years and get the most out of yourself. A lot of people are internally driven in that way. And that's awesome. But most people, there's a lot of external motivation and it's the people that stick around are the ones that think I want to make an Olympic team. Right. And so everybody underneath who is still an elite athlete, um, there's really no place for them because they don't want to just start going to do masters. Masters is great too. And like I said, my Pro career started when I went to a master's meet and had a lot of fun and set four national records with friends. Um, but with younger swimmers, it's hard to want to just immediately start doing masters because it feels almost like a workout. And a lot of the elite swimmers just don't want to just go work out using swimming when all of the external meaning that college swimming provides gets cleaved out. Mm. Um, and I think now that the I, number one, now that the ISL is in place a lot more people feel like they have a shot to do something that's like externally cool and worthwhile in swimming. And they don't feel almost like a shame for sticking around, you know, cause I see like, and a lot of people, I know the posts are coming from a good place and they're headed to great jobs. They're ready to move on from swimming, but I see everyone and their mother posting on swimming when they're 22 years old and they're a senior in college and they just got done swimming. And it's like, you know, this big long essay of like goodbye forever swimming. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, forever. I, I just there's it's so meaningful to so many people. And I think about someone who's, you know, fourteenth or fifth, the fourteenth or fifteenth best swimmer on let's call it the fifteenth best team in the country. I'm not going to say a specific program. Like that's an elite level swimmer, man. Mm -hmm. If they were a basketball player, or they could go play in Italy or Israel if they didn't get drafted in the NBA, right? Yeah. Like a top fifteen program. Someone yeah. who was, you know, in the middle percentile on their team, they can mm -hmm. go be a pro basketball player and travel the world. Um, NFL players, the draft is what six rounds, and don't even start. Baseball is like twenty rounds, right? I mean, you could be 
you know, high school kids get drafted in baseball and there's so many opportunities to be pro. And I think swimming is a sport where there's, and a lot of sports too, but swimming, my experience, it's so meaningful and so impactful. And then what, it's just gone. So I, that didn't sit well with me. And so I guess the main thing I want people to understand and learn is there is such a scale of what you can do with swimming when you're done with, you don't just have to hang it up just because now you're, you know, an account manager, right? Like I just made wave two of the Olympic trials swimming 90 minutes a week, right? For a year and a half and focusing on a lot on my body outside the pool and focusing a lot on other things um, that help that help with my performance besides just swimming. But 90 minutes a week plus an hour Pilates session um, plus a weight workout, we're talking about three, four hours a week. That's as much as most normal people work out anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be what it was before. It doesn't have to be I'm doing 10 workouts a week for my college program and getting ready for conferences. Right. So I, I hope that's the main, and, and it can be intrinsic. You can do cool things for yourself. You can still maximize your body's potential because deep down, that's why we're swimming. It's not to work out and be healthy. Like a typical, like a typical non, you know, high end collegiate student athlete does. We're doing it to maximize potential and just really drill down and be elite at something. And, and I'm sure all that, that anxiety and fear and all that other stuff you dealt with in college, that's all gone now. Hey. I had to work through it, but yeah, a, I would say in the last year and a half, two years or so, I've put myself in a pretty amazing place mentally compared to, um, you know, ups and downs that I've had in the past. My wife was a big part of that. My family's a big part of that, yeah. but really accepting the fact that I'm a professional athlete and that doesn't mean having to be an Olympian. I might not even make the ISL this year. Who knows? But I know that I'm a professional athlete because I dedicate the main pie chart of my day to that. That that meant a lot to me. Instead of hiding behind the veil of like, well, I'm a coach. You know, it's a hobby. You know, like I swim on the side right, to keep right. up with my athletes and keep things fresh for them. It's like, no, I'm an athlete. I really want to be one. I like that I'm an athlete. And I'm 30 years old. You know, LeBron James is 36. <laughs> Chris well, Paul's going to be 43. Seven. Dude, you, you, could come back and, you could come back next year and beat me. You could go 22-4 in the 53. I have I no mean, doubt I've that. still got these bad boys. I think I could do some damage. Hey, no. Tom Brady won a Super Bowl at 43. <laughs> you know, like he could be a backup quarterback until age 50. We're finding out you can do so much yeah. body, man. And it yeah. doesn't even have to be, again, the grindy way. And that's – I have to give a ton of credit to UVA for revealing that to me, that it's – they and they bust ass, dude. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Crap out of practice when they work. But it's work in a way that revealed to me that there's just more than one way to look at it. That's all. Yeah. And yeah. I like that I can do that now and I have the power to do that now. I hope other people – a, see the ISL as a way to do that. You know, again, someone who's the 10th best swimmer on the 10th best team in the country. Now they can think I can make, you know, why not stick around? Why not? Why not? Like, that's cool. And there's no shame involved in it. It's not just, well, I'm going to go to nationals every year and make a B final. Like, I have to be okay with that. First of all, getting 15th in the country in something every single year is awesome if that's what you're doing. But now people just have like an extra layer of like, yeah, this is why I'm doing it. And they can explain it at the dinner parties. Right. And they can tell their parents and their parents can tell their friends. Like, it's not just, ah, you know, my, like he's sticking around. He wants to train for the Olympics. It's like, 
there's a professional swimming league. This is what they want to do. And it's, it's effing awesome that they're going to do it. So well, I, I, I hope you get in it, man. I yeah. hope you get in it. I'm pushing for it. And I know you are. And um, yeah, it'll be fun. But if not this year, we'll get in next year, but it's going to happen. You're one of those guys that kind of has that manifest destiny. You think it before it, before it happens and, and, it, and kind of falls into place. I like that. Read the secret. If you're listening, you may not like it. You may not buy it, but it's exactly what Brett's talking about. At See, least give yeah. yourself the chance to read it and see if you're into it. Listen, man, I appreciate this. I got to bounce, um, but uh, it's been fun catching up. And, you're the uh, man, Brett. Appreciate it, man. Take care, all right? Yep. Catch y'all. Later, bro.